don't get too caught up in the tax attributes. First and foremost, you need to consider how you're going to repay debt, how you're going to expand, you know, in particular if you're looking at an acquisition. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 298 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Today, we go back to the question of how to structure a farming business. Tara Kadihi of PwC in Brisbane will discuss the different options with you. The first question is, why are partnerships so popular in farming? And what are the advantages of running your farm as a partnership? To be honest, I suppose in, in agriculture, that's where you see the most partnerships. There's probably a few reasons for this. Agriculture is very capital intensive. So your, your main asset is going to be that farming property. And usually you would only see that change hands once every generation. And so you probably have this historic timeline of properties being passed down to, to siblings in a, in a family, for example, and that would be where a partnership's introduced. Partnerships have also been the preferred method to structure farming operations from the point of view of the, the flow-through treatment that each individual partner could get. And in particular for, for primary production, that's important not only in, in years of drought, for example, where you might have losses, the losses aren't trapped at the partnership, but would, would go through to each individual partner as opposed to, say, a, a trust structure from that point of view. You also get the flow through treatment of the income, which is important for those individuals who may be using to avail themselves to the primary production averaging concessions for their for their tax rate and likewise want to use farm management deposits. They're probably some of the main drivers that you've seen uh, the reason you've seen a lot of partnerships arise in, in this industry in particular. It's a very good point, actually, when things are tough. I think farmers, and correct me if I'm wrong, if farmers don't live too remote, they often have a second or third job. They might have an earth-moving company on the side. I think during the drought, a lot of farmers moved into mining. You have other income that you can then offset with the um, farming loss, which of course you couldn't if you ran the farm through a company or trust. Yeah, that's that's um, a common example in, in the, the smaller farming operations that, yeah, you'll see in particular wage income, so off-farm income, like a teacher's salary or earth-moving income. Um, so obviously you cannot You don't have the ability to structure that through a, a trust. So it's earned at the individual level and there is the ability to, um, yeah, to offset that partnership loss. Another mechanism of having a partnership as well is you might see a partner's salary drawn. So a partnership might be set up as 50-50 between husband and wife as an example, but it might be um, that the wife has a, a teaching job and so the husband is the one that works the farm and so he might take a first cut of that partnership profit representing the effort that he's put in and so that's an, another mechanism of kind of splitting income representing the actual commercial reality of what's happened there as well. Yeah, that's a good point. So you can look at what other income there was and then distribute the partnership income accordingly so that you max out 
both tax brackets evenly. Yeah, and I definitely recommend that when you're, when you're looking to do that via partner salary, it represents the underlying reality of, of contribution to the partnership. And But that would normally align with, yeah, income being earned off farm would mean that that person's contributing less to that, that operation as well. But that you could also do through a company. The company could also pay your salary and accordingly distribute the income accordingly. But of course, with STP now, that flexibility is very much through the door. Yeah, you, you have to report that at the at the time of, of payment, agree the, the kind of wage in upfront there. Yeah, exactly. So you can no longer say at year end, how much income do we have? How much income did you have? Where do we need to plug a hole, etc. with STP? That is a lot harder. Um, that is the second thing, that, that you still have probably more flexibility with distributing income than you currently have now going forward through a company with STP. And then there was something else you touched on that I realized that we ac I've actually never covered, and that is the averaging of farm income. Can you talk a little bit about that? Does that apply to any legal entity or only to, to partnerships? Yeah, so I won't I won't go through the mechanisms of how to calculate it. It can be a, quite a complex formula, but it only applies to individuals paying tax at the marginal tax rate. So the the policy reason behind the averaging is is recognizing that primary production is very seasonal, and there's a few other concessions as well that apply to that concept. Um, you know, deferring livestock um, profits when you've had a forced disposal is is another example. But on on primary production averaging for individuals so it, it just recognizes the fact that you might have a year you know for example that you had a really good wheat crop and, and wheat prices were high you had a good yield so your income might be a lot higher than say for example the next year you're affected by drought your yield was low prices had dropped so it's very up and down fluctuating and for an individual that has different marginal tax rates that's quite different to a company for example that just pays you know, at the 30% or at the, at the lower 26, 25% now. So it's to it's a mechanism to look at your primary production income over five years and average that out and to kind of do a top up. So you'd pay a little bit more or pay a little bit less depending on where the averaging comes out. Okay, so this tries to reflect a little bit the uh, timing flexibility you have within a company or a trust. It doesn't go all the way, but at least it smoothes it a little bit. Whereas within a company or a trust, of course, you have complete timing flexibility. Of course, as long as with the trust, you also use a bucket company. But you have timing flexibility, meaning you're completely free when you decide to distribute the income, which of course you don't have in a partnership, but this averaging edges a little bit closer towards that. Yeah, and the averaging would also apply to an individual beneficiary of a trust because, once again, the trust keeps the um, flow-through treatment of that income. So if it's identified as primary production income and it's being distributed to an individual, they will also be able to apply averaging to that. Oh, I see. Okay, good. So the averaging of farming income applies to individuals, but also to individual beneficiaries of discretionary trusts. In receipt of, yeah, in receipt of that primary production income. The last thing you mentioned was farm managed deposits. Can you talk about that as well? Yeah, and I must admit, I'm not a complete expert in this area because a lot of my clients, I suppose, are more corporate and don't necessarily use these farm management deposits. But it's a It's the idea that you can, in, in good years, for example, you might have some extra um, cash 
And so you might deposit that in what's farm management deposits um, scheme. It's a, it's a particular type of bank account. It's got specific criteria it has to meet. And you actually get a deduction for that amount that you've um, put that into the farm management deposit. And that's another income smoothing mechanism. Now, there's a other criteria around that. Um, there's a set limit. So you couldn't, um, if you had a million dollars worth of primary production income, you couldn't put the full million dollars in a farm management deposit. It, I think it's limited at 500,000. I think it increased in the last few years. So there is a limit. And the idea is when you withdraw it, that's then treated as income in your name. So yeah, it's another way to kind of smooth out income, but you cannot access and use that cash while it's in that farm management deposit account. So the farm management deposit is basically a way to park profits. You made a half a million dollar of profit. You don't need the money at the moment. You put it into this farm management deposit. It doesn't count as income yet. And then you slowly take it out, 100,000 every year. And then only then do you pay tax on that income. Yeah, on withdrawal, you pay tax on, on the income. So you can't use the money while it's in the deposit. But of course, you can always withdraw from the deposit and then uh, and then use it. And you're completely free how much you withdraw every year, correct? You don't have to stick to a schedule. You can change your mind and say, actually, to this year I need more, next year I need less. You're, there's complete flexibility, correct? Uh, I don't know that one off the top of my head. Sorry. I, the one thing I would recommend is if you're using the farm management deposit, you, there's some strict rules around it to make sure you still satisfy that requirement. So if you were looking into that, I'd recommend checking those requirements. But the idea being, as you touched on, you've got the surplus cash, you, you put it in that account and you don't need it. And then in theory, and what the policy objective is trying to get at is when you actually do withdraw, it, it might be perhaps it, it is a bit of a tougher year. You are affected by drought or low prices. And so you would naturally assume that your income would be lower in those years as well when you're withdrawing it. Now, looking at the advantages of partnerships and why partnerships have been so popular over the past decades, they're basically four and we discussed three so far so there's losses are not trapped so you can offset it with other income you can do income averaging which of course you only can do if the farming business is in individual names or in or an individual beneficiary of of a trust and then three farm management deposits are only available to individuals and then also individual beneficiaries of trusts i assume yes in receipt of primary production income Yes. And then the fourth advantage, of course, is very straightforward. Partnerships, I assume, are cheaper than companies or trusts because you you still have a second tax return for the partnership, but at least you don't have ASIC fees. So the price difference is probably negligible in the scheme of things. I suppose they're quite easy to set up. Initial upfront costs is cheaper than a, um, than a company. It's probably zero, isn't it? You know, Sean and Sheila just get going. Might be easier for husband and husband and wife. They might decide to get going. Um, if you're kind of unrelated, you probably want to get a partnership agreement drawn up just to um, confirm, you know, profit shares and and all of that. But yeah, generally it it would be it could be quite minimal upfront. But I could imagine ninety nine percent of the partnerships in farming businesses are husband and wife. Don't you think? Yes. Or father and son, or mother and daughter. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly right. And then I can imagine the fifth reason that partnerships are so popular is probably also because it's easier to understand. I think if you come into this with a fresh mind, then I think the thought that the company is actually a separate legal entity from you, sometimes I think can be difficult to grasp, whereas I think partnerships are just easy to understand. You know, it's you and me and we share everything, basically. Yeah, and I suppose too, it's it's a lot easier to understand that, you know, you own 50% of this block of land or 50% of, um, you know, this herd of cattle, whereas a company, you might own 50% of the shares you've got to, got to trace through. So yeah, it could potentially be easier to, to understand. Okay, so these are five reasons why partnerships have been so popular in farming. But now, why this new trend now to companies and trusts? Yeah, so there's probably a, a few reasons for that. And, and it probably goes along the scale too of primary production getting more sophisticated and more commercialized. You know, we're seeing less and less, you know, the mum and dad farms. We're seeing kind of large corporations, um, large pastoral companies doing land aggregations of property. So we're seeing... We're seeing a lot more activity in even just the the buying and selling of of land. And there's, you know, and in particular at the moment with debt being so cheap, um, there are a lot of acquisitions happening. There's a lot more. um, So while partnerships are easy to set up, if you've got third parties, there's obviously um, joint and several liability involved in a partnership. So you're going into to business with a partner and you're potentially exposed to some of their risks. So a, a company for example, is a more preferred option, a more protected option. And and likewise, you know, as you're scaling up and you've got employees, you've got workplace health and safety risks, which is quite high on on farms. You want to have that legal protection, which a company can provide more than, say, an individual partner as well. Looking at the market, and uh, would you think it's fair to say that you have a lot more big players in the market now, so the big ones are getting bigger, and then, but you also have a lot of very, very small, basically non-commercial farms that just run 100, 200 cattle and are more like a hobby farm, but the middle field is basically slowly draining out. Would you think that's a fair comment? I think that's a, a fair comment without kind of having any statistics or anything handy it's it it's just basically what you have been observing yeah and agribusiness as an industry is at a probably a really exciting point though at the moment so there has been that interest from more corporates and upscaling operations and then adding in technology like um, the work they're doing, you know, with crops and genetics and getting, um, you know, beef production, the science and that kind of behind it, it's actually becoming quite a good career option for um, younger people as well. So in agribusiness, so there's a new trend of kind of going back to the farm, but the farm is not the, the dairy farm, you, you know, you grew up on. It's a more commercialised part of a larger organisation, yeah. scientific, yeah, operation. After a partnership, what is the most common structure in Australia? Is it just a pure company, a pure trust or multi-layered? Or is it difficult to say because it really depends on the size of the farming operation? Yeah, it's it's a tough question and it varies from obviously client to client. So it would obviously also depend on existing entities and that that the client might have as well. But we're seeing a bit of a trend at the moment. So historically... 
you know, structuring, the, the most common structure would, would be a discretionary trust. And the reason that you would do that is you had the ability of putting a capital appreciating asset in the trust and, and running the business through the trust. If there was any eventual sale, you could distribute the capital gain out to individuals and get the 50% discount. You would then use a bucket company to distribute the business profits down to and pay tax at the corporate tax rate. We've seen that landscape change in the last few years because in particular, those business profits have to be paid down to the corporate beneficiary. So either paid in cash every year or put on a sub-trust arrangement or Division 7A arrangement with very mm-hmm. scheduled repayment terms. Yeah, and so you get into this whole UPE saga with unpaid present entitlements and... Revolving cycle of how we're going to repay those every year, in particular for businesses that already have debt, external debt, debt to banks that might need to be repaid, as well as those businesses that are looking to like expand. So their working capital requirements um, are getting bigger and bigger. So it's a bit hard to retain those profits. And even, uh, you know, for example, in, in the beef industry at the moment, the working capital requirements are a lot higher purely because the price of cattle has increased. So it's a lot harder to manage those requirements in, in a trust that you need to be extracting that cash out to, to pay that company beneficiary. So it goes against the, the grain a little bit to put, you know, a property, for example, in a company, but we're seeing it happen more and more, especially if it is going to be debt funded because you've got the certainty that you can retain those profits to repay that debt, retain those profits to, to expand. And usually there is a long-term view taken to, for example, to the purchase of a property, a CGT appreciating asset, that it's going to stay in the family or the organisation for, you know, years and years to come. So you kind of forgo the benefit of the CGT discount if it ever was sold to have that certainty. And likewise, you can always structure the company in a way that the shares are owned by a discretionary trust, which gives the flexibility on any if eventual share sale, you could get the CGT discount at that level. So then the main issue with discretionary trust is cash. When you need to fund the operations out of current profits and the trust tends to always leak those profits down to beneficiaries. And then, of course, you have a you have a cash problem. Yes. And now you already touched on multi-layered structures that you have the trust owning the company. And then, of course, you are back into the game for the 50% CGT discount. Is that a common scenario then, moving from a partnership, moving from a pure discretionary trust to a multi-layered structure where you have a company and then this company is owned by a trust, probably with a bucket company on the side? Is that quite a common structure now coming into agriculture? Yeah, it's it's definitely more common, especially as acquisitions and that are happening, you you kind of migrating clients to that that structure. Do you see a lot of times that the land and the business are owned by different entities? Yeah, that's a quite common structure. So for example, when you're becoming larger scale and more corporatized, you might set up a structure and it's to separate risk and asset protection. So, you, you know, keep your employees separate to the underlying um, land, which is probably one of the most valuable assets. A, a common structure that you can use to facilitate that is you can have the, the land in a separate company and then your business operations in another company, and then you can actually tax consolidate. Obviously, you know, if you've got existing 
companies and I'd highly recommend before you choose to tax consolidate modeling that out because there can be very strange outcomes that can come out of tax consolidation but the benefit of setting that up from the from the beginning is you've got you've got your legal separation which affords that asset protection but then at the end of the day you, you're lodging that one tax return it's it's all treated as the one entity so it, it's not a big issue if you know, in one year, the business operations actually have a loss and the, the land, the rental profits and income um, in a profit, you can offset that within the tax consolidated group. That's a good point. You would have two companies, one owns the land, one runs the business. Each of them is owned by a separate discretionary trust and that then has a corporate trustee. And then you would have at least one, maybe two bucket companies on the side if you ever want if you want to take the profits out of the companies and run them through the discretionary trusts into a bucket company where you can then invest them. Yeah. So to clarify for a tax consolidated group, you need one single head company that then 100% owns the other companies. So in that case, you would have three companies. You'd have a head company that then owns the shares in the land and business operations that would be subsidiaries, but they'd be kind of sister companies. So that's how you get the, the legal structuring and that asset protection because they're not owned by each other, they're, um, they're sister companies. And then that head company, so you need that to form a basic tax consolidated group. And then that head company would be owned by a discretionary trust that, yeah, as you quite rightly said, if you wanted to extract profits to get that out of that higher risk environment, you could distribute that to the discretionary trust then to an, another company, bucket yeah. company owned by a separate discretionary trust. So you don't have two separate companies that are owned by two separate trusts, but you have two separate companies owned by a holding and then that holding is owned by a discretionary trust. Yeah. Do you, and I guess the answer to my, my next question is no, because you tend to deal more with large farming corporations and my question is more about hobby farms. Have you seen a number of farms where an individual holds the land to negatively gear it and then have the farming business run through a company or a trust? Yeah, I've seen that a few times. It's it's a little bit hard to negatively gear at the moment. Like I don't want to complain too much about low interest rates, but definitely it does make negatively gearing a bit hard. But yeah, the idea behind that structure is obviously um, non-commercial losses, right? So when you've got a farming operation run by individuals or likewise in a partnership of individuals, if that's in a loss, you have to consider the non-commercial loss rules and work through those tests. And obviously to the first one being the income requirement. So as soon as your income's above the 250000 regardless if that operation's met those other tests, you can't use that, that loss to offset against your other income as an individual. So quite often you do see that split, the negatively geared of the property, which is not subject to the non-commercial loss rules, and then the business operations run through, through a separate entity, so a trust or, or a company because they're not subject to the non-commercial loss rules. The only thing to consider in that is usually the benefit of negatively gearing is claiming that deduction at the highest marginal tax rate of 47%. But just being mindful of someone on that income might be wishing to reduce the assets in their name. They might be, you know, professional that um, might be at risk of being sued. So whilst you've put the negatively geared asset in the name, you, you're increasing the, the assets that, um, held yeah, in the individual name as well. So something to, to weigh up there. 
Can I talk to you about SMSFs? Because when there was a lot of talking about moving assets into SMSFs and there was quite often the talk of having the farm in an SMSF and then you can hand it down from generation to generation. But I, I find that it has become quite quiet and I think it has become quiet because it's a... It's not such a good idea, but I, maybe I'm wrong. I would love to get your input uh, from that. And I think, just to quickly tell you, the reason I think it's a, a dumb idea, it's basically two reasons. One is super desk tax. One is minimum pension payments. I hand over to you and I because I would love to... I would love to get your input. We can see if we can get to a third third yes. reason. So, um, yeah, just to, to preface the comments, too, you've got to remember when you're moving any properties as well, any stamp duty. So whilst it might be a, a great benefit to move it into a, a an existing property owned into a self-managed super fund because they're paying tax at 15% or, or lower if members are on pension phase, um, there's likely to be stamp duty, um, which varies from state by state. And often... It might be just $500, I think, correct? When you move it from an individual ownership to your SMSF, then I think very often you can get out of st stamp duty, correct? It varies from state by state. So there might be some concessions in some states and, and others not. So highly recommend yes. looking yeah. that, that up because yeah. that can be quite costly. Yeah, but a fair point. And then also, of course, the other reason is you, you realize the capital gains tax, but that might be a good thing. Because that might be a good thing if you will struggle to get the small business CGT concessions later on and you want to realize them now. But there might be other ways to do that rather than transferring it to the SMSF. So there's probably two scenarios. There would be existing properties that you'd be looking to move it to the SMSF or the acquisition of, say, new property. So I might touch on, on that one first. So it'd be quite common, for example, a family to have, um, you know, they they're not impressed with the stock market, don't, you know, and, and term deposits and bonds aren't doing anything for them. And, you know, they're familiar with prime production properties and they've identified one and they're all cashed up in the super fund. So that happens quite commonly where there'd be an acquisition of a property. The benefit of that buying the, the farming property in the super fund is so obviously there's strict rules around self-managed super funds and interactions with related parties. A farming property would generally fall under what we call a business real property. And so that means that that's actually allowed to be acquired off related parties, but likewise leased to related parties. So quite often within a family, there might be yeah, excess cash in the super fund. They've identified a property that they're going to lease to their, their company or trust. They go and get a market valuation done for what arm's length rental should be paid. And so that's a quite common scenario you might see. Where you do run into some issues and, and you've touched on them is one, you've got to make sure you've got the liquidity. So you might have turned that cashed up super fund into 100% owning a property. And so you've got to have those rental payments coming in. And depending on if you're then starting a pension, depending on the age of the members, is that rental yield more than enough to cover those minimum pension payments? And a, and a simple scenario, say, of, of um, mum and dad being the only members. So yeah, death does present a trigger event for kind of where does that property end up? So it might still want to stay within the family, but because a death benefit has to be paid out, essentially that property either has to be liquidated or another related party would purchase that property to inject the cash into the super fund to, to pay that death benefit out. 
you used to be able to do a reversionary pension. So I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yes, so yes. you would have that, that could l- let you keep the asset in the fund for a bit longer than uh, until the, um, the decease of the second member, as an example. That's a little bit limited now because obviously of the 1.6 million cap on pensions, although I think it's the 1.7 now, it's it's increased too. The other interesting scenario that, that often gets thrown up with super funds and, and those big lumpy property assets is you might have pulled mum and dad together and, you know, the adult, two adult children. So you've got a, a four-member super fund cashed up and um, purchases this property except, you know, Five years down the track, one of the sons wants to go off and do their own thing and they actually want to withdraw their super balance. And so that's when you've also got issues around um, the non-liquidity of that fund and how you pay out that, that family member as well from the acquiring existing properties. So it's it's a bit of a yeah cost-benefit scenario of any upfront cost to move it in there. Does it, you know, obviously too, you always have to, when dealing with self-managed super funds, make sure first and foremost the acquisition and the investment satisfies the sole purpose test arm's length terms in place when you went renting it out but this the same kind of issues that you touched on present themselves and that we just spoke about as well with that lumpy asset in there so it is possible but buyer beware yeah and and also too you might trigger the the transfer of that property upon the um you know, in in a family business, for example, you've triggered the transfer of that property at the parents' level earlier than you might have intended it um, if it was to pass down to, to generations as well. What are the most common hurdles and mistakes you see when it comes to structuring a farm? Yes. Yeah. So one of the ones that kind of presents itself a lot, especially when looking at to structure in different entities. So, so there's some specific tax provisions in respect to primary production. So, for example, there's a 100% write-off for, for water assets, fodder storage assets and, and fencing. And one of those exam- um, to access those concessions is you have to be carrying on a, a primary production business. And so some of the issues that might come up when you've structured the land separate to the actual carrying on a business is if the land entity has gone and, um, you know, installed all these water troughs and, and fencing, that entity itself is not actually eligible for those primary production write-offs because it's not in itself carrying on a primary production business. It's only deriving uh, rental income or, or adjustment income. Mm. So the key would be to make sure that you're doing the acquisition of those assets um, in the actual entity that's carrying on the the primary production business and to extend that as well that equally applies to now you know with your temporary full expensing of, of assets you've got to be carrying on a, on a business to qualify for that so just making sure that those acquisitions and those write-offs are being done in the in the actual correct entity if you've got that multi-structured entity can the operating company or the operating business can they for example build a house build a shed build water storage assets build fencing all of that on land they don't own yeah so they can um as is a part of the kind of lease agreement that they're they're building it on on land that they're actually 
leasing and they're actually the holder of that asset as part of the agreement. So yeah, that's quite common within primary production to have that structured that way. I see. Okay. And now stepping away from primary production, so for example, to look at the um, construction of, of, a, of a business premises or, or similar, you could have the operating company or you could have one legal entity build the office block while another legal entity owns the land. Is that legally possible? Do you know? Or have you seen it? I haven't seen it as much in respect to what to Division 43 assets, so building as an as example, because they're subject to the capital improvements write-off, the 2.5%. Where for in primary production in particular, so for example, the building of a shed, whilst you would normally consider that to be a Division 43 asset, there's special provisions that when it's actually used in a primary production business that that shed's actually treated as a Division 40 depreciable asset. Yeah, and so that means you get a lot more depreciation during your lifetime. Correct. So that's where you um, you, you see that come up as a common um, common example in, in, in particular. You have to make sure, though, that the lease agreement, so yeah, once check, check with the, your lawyer, just check that there's nothing funny that um, in, the, in the lease agreement or it's actually permissible under the, the lease agreement as well. So that was the first common mistake you've seen, and that's actually a very good one. I hadn't thought of that one, so that's a very good one. Do you have any others, or is this the main one? That's uh, probably the main one. Other other areas that you see issues come up in, um, so also to so primary producers and it, in particular those who hold livestock are able to defer profit in connection with livestock and what we call forced sales. So it might be, for example, because of drought, they've had to destock. And so they would have otherwise sold some part of their core breeding herd that they might not necessarily have um, would have sold in their normal business operation. So you can defer those profits. And so always worthwhile just double checking the, the calculations of those profits and the timing of either if those profits are going to be brought in evenly over the five years or if you've made the election to actually reduce your future purchases of livestock by those um, deferred profits. So just, um, yeah, making sure that those calculations are done correct and the method is applied consistently. That's, a, that's another bit of an area to watch out for. The other, the only other kind of uh, one that I've seen recently as well is, um, you know, it, when when you're looking at transitioning to different generations and succession planning, just seeing a lot of issues come up where, for example, adult children might have gone and set up their own structures and discretionary trusts and, and made family trust elections where they're the test individuals um, and then they kind of gain control of a, of a family trust that had owned the main property, but the family trust election was the, you know, their, their father. So just being really mindful of some issues that might come up there and whether interposed entity elections have to be made. But that's a, another um, one that you see, particularly when transitioning to different generations. That's a very good point. Watch out for family trust elections and interposed entity elections. Yes, for sure. Always watch out for those. My last question is, if you bought a farm today, how would you structure it? It's a good question because it is a dream of mine to have a bit of a, a weekender and, and run a couple of cattle and, and horses on. <laughs> 
I think it would depend, obviously, because um, as we were touching on before, you know, when you're you're a professional, it's definitely off farm income. So I would be, I don't know how profitable my farm would be, but I suspect I'd be subject to the non-commercial losses. So um, yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably just structure it in in an entity, a a trust or or, um, probably a trust and um, to kind of reduce the assets in, in my name in case I've given out bad tax advice and then gives the, you know, flexibility of profits to distribute to um, to other family members. So you would actually hold the land within the trust as well. I thought you would have said you would hold the land in individual names so that you can negatively gear it. But of course, you're right. It's always a weighing up between asset protection and the benefit of negative gearing. Yeah, it's... um. Have to, I'd have to sit down with a spreadsheet <laughs> and, and run those through. <laughs> Don't get too caught up in the tax attributes. First and foremost, you need to consider how you're going to repay debt, how you're going to expand, you know, in particular if you're looking at an acquisition. Think about those, the commercial aspects, the, the real risks of wanting to separate assets out from business operations um, and then think about then the, the, the tax attributes after that as well perfect yeah so basically don't get too bogged down on tax and lose uh, lose Lose sight of the commercial yeah the, the commercial reality of it welcome back during the interview i asked tara whether she has a farming background and here's what she said so yeah my family has a farming background and my brother is still um on some properties. So I, um, I've kind of grown up on the land. I still have, um, two horses and an an old cattle dog that I've got down here in, in, um, in, in Brisbane. So, um, yeah, I I very much have a connection with the, with the land. I enjoy getting out on my brothers on the, on the weekend and helping him with some cattle work and just getting out into the fresh air. And I'm currently growing some pineapples in my tiny little courtyard here in, in Brisbane. So <laughs> I'm still very much at the hobby phase. Did you have some agricultural topics in your studies or was that more focused on commerce and tax? Yeah, so I was more focused on commerce and tax. And it's through experience. So a lot of my client portfolios are involved um, in, in agribusiness. And so that's how I've become more exposed to the, the business side and the tax side of that. So it wasn't originally planned that you become an agriculture tax expert, but it makes complete sense with hindsight. Yes, it does. It does. Yes, it's quite fortuitous, really. Yeah, I was had to last weekend go and help my brother muster cattle. I was, I was good to get back to the desk on Monday. It's hard work on a farm. <laughs> yes, I agree. Welcome back. Next week, we will talk again. I don't know yet what the topic will be right now, but it will come. So until next week, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.